You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Let me read the psalm once again. It says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. A beautiful psalm. I could maybe just say that and get off the stage. There's not much, uh, well, if this is a stage, the rug. Um, and not unpack it because it's just so rich and such a beautiful little prayer. But we're going to walk through it um, a little bit and try and see what this kind of means for us as a people 20 or 2,000 years from uh, removed from Christ's death and resurrection Uh, Three sections I want to highlight in this psalm. The first is just this simple appeal to unity, the goodness of unity, how good it is. Um, Second and third are two separate metaphors. This good unity is like oil on the head of a priest, and it's like dew on the mountain falling on the hill. And then the psalm, this isn't really a section, but it ends with this conclusion statement, in unity, in unity there is life, and in life, unity. So first, unity. What is unity? Well, unity is this is a state of harmony and peace with one another. This can be individual. It can be experienced in a group. Um, and we know th- all throughout the Bible, we are called to be a united people. We are called to uh, desire and fight for unity. And because unity is um, it's harmony and peace with one another, I think it's often hard to point towards relationships that have unity, right? Like, I think if you're thinking right now, oh, well, okay, the relationships that are easy or that are, are the best in my life, those are relationships that have unity. And you'd be right. But the inverse of that is when a relationship is experiencing a lack of unity, you know it. You know it. It, it, it does something to me, at least, physically, mentally, spiritually. It weighs on my soul in a way that when I have unity, it, it feels like Every relationship should be like the one with unity. And the ones that, the relationships that are difficult in my life or that are experiencing some measure of lack of unity, it it weighs on me in a way that I'm desiring to reconcile or desiring forgiveness or desiring something to change. Um, And I think this is because, quite simply, we are made for unity. And so when we're experiencing unity, it feels right. It feels natural. And this is true whether you're a believer or not. Unity is just what we are made for, and it's because, very simply and yet very complexly, we, we reflect God. We reflect God who is Trinity, who is in a unified relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. We reflect God by being united. And, and here's another thought. Um, in Genesis 2, God makes Adam, he makes man, and puts Adam in the garden And Adam has food, he has provision, he has water, he has sustenance. He's walking with God himself, and God looks at Adam and says, this is not good. We're often, I can often tell myself, like, I just need, just need God and me alone, and I'll be good. But when Adam is experiencing that, without barrier, God says, this is not good. Man is not made to be alone. Out of this, God creates Eve. And it's an apologetic for God has made us to belong to people. 
He has made us to experience relationship because it's a way that we reflect who God is. God is in relationship with himself. Therefore, we are made for relationship. Um, it's good, the psalm says, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's right. It's who we are made to be. Further, um, unity in and of itself is too nebulous a concept. It's too foggy a concept to alone hold a relationship together. Here's what I mean. I can't just walk down the street and look at a random stranger and say, you, we are united in relationship. Right? Like, there would be nothing in general that would unite us in relationship. There has to be something that binds us together in unity. This is true of all your relationships, whether you've ever acknowledged it or not, right? Like, your family is bound by name and by blood, by lineage, by a shared history. Your friendships are bound by common interest or shared experience, right? Like, a lot of my friends went to the same schools as me, high school, college, things like that. So, we're friends because we had the same shared experience at the same time in the same place together. That, that binds us in unity of relationship. And, and for clarity's sake, like unity is not uniformity, right? This needs to be clear. Uniformity is, is defined by everybody being exactly the same. But, but unity is harmony of people who are very different. There's something that's binding us together. And so for the people of God... It is not something as low as shared experience or shared school or shared interest, even though those things are really beautiful. It's not even something as low as blood or lineage. It's something above those things. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. This is what he tells us we are united in as the people of God. It says this, I, Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on to say, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The unity that binds the church is the unity of the spirit. It's the unity of the spirit. And Paul says that binds us in peace, in harmony, not in conflict, not in strife. It binds us in peace. This is the type of unity that the Jewish pilgrims are singing about as they march towards Jerusalem, right? The people of Israel are united by what? Their experience of Yahweh, their devotion to Yahweh, to God, and the fact that they were chosen by him. That's the thing that binds them. They, it's not even that they were necessarily of the same lineage, because in the Jewish law, there are ways for non-Jews to become Jewish who would sing these psalms and say, my brothers and sisters of Jerusalem... Right? So, the, the fact that they were chosen by God is what makes them united. Um, we who have been part of the church for even a little bit know a truth that lies under this unity, and that's just the simple fact that unity is very hard. It's very difficult. It's difficult when people with different ideas different backgrounds, different experiences, get together and try to follow Jesus together. Um, caring for one another in harmony without conflict is very difficult. The psalm says how good and pleasant it is when brothers 
dwell in unity. It's certainly talking about a spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood that we experience through Christ. But maybe you may remember the first Bible story about brothers. It's the, it's the first story about any sibling in the Bible. It's also the first story about murder. <laughs> it's Cain and Abel. There's a murder that happens with the first siblings in the Bible. This should give us a hint that unity is very difficult. Conflict is something that results easier for us as a result of the fall. Um, so unity is very difficult, even for God's people. And just saying we need to have unity or we should have unity or let's be united isn't enough in the end. It's not enough to just want unity. It's not enough to just say that we need unity. We have to have something done to us or put another way, as this psalm does, something has to be poured on us. Unity has to be poured on us. The first of the two examples says that unity is like a precious oil poured on the head and running down the beard of Aaron and all of his clothes. Well, Aaron is the first head of the priesthood in Israel. In Exodus 30, God tells Moses, Moses is the man who delivered Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery. God comes and tells Moses um, exactly to do exactly what we see in this metaphor. He says, mix fragrant oils, expensive oils. And don't keep them, pour them out on Aaron. And in doing so, you will consecrate, you will make Aaron holy so that he can do my work. The work that Aaron is called to do is to make sacrifices in order to worship God and to make sacrifices in order to achieve forgiveness for the people, right? So this picture of a priest being consecrated with oil is meant to signify unity, but how is anointing oil being poured on a priest and making him holy uh, a signifier of unity. Well, first, uh, I think the very act signifies how we achieve unity, right? Oil must be poured out. Oil, for Aaron's sake, somebody had to get up higher than Aaron and pour oil down his head, down his beard, down the collars of his robes in order to drench him in oil, well, in the same way, in Matthew 3.16, Jesus is baptized, and we're told the Holy Spirit is poured out and descends like a dove onto Christ. And as such, the heavens are rifted open, and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am pleased. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit descends again, but this time Jesus has sent the Spirit of God onto his people in the upper room. The Holy Spirit descends on the disciples in the upper room, and Peter, quoting the prophet Joel, says, God is pouring out his Spirit on us, right? So the oil in the, the priestly anointing being poured out on Aaron is symbolized by the Holy Spirit being poured out on us today. It's meant to make us think of the same, same thing. The oil is like the spirit being poured out, and the same spirit that is poured out brings unity. Second, the oil poured on Aaron purified him. It consecrated him. It made him holy. Likewise, the Holy Spirit poured out on us. What is the Holy Spirit doing in us, on us, as he flows over us? The Holy Spirit is making us holy. Right? In a real way, as the verse says in 1 Peter, which is part of our benediction this morning, um, those who follow Jesus are part of a new priesthood made holy by the anointing, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on us. And so 
Unity for the Christian is unity in the spirit because we are united by the same spirit being poured out on each of us. And that same spirit is working in us to make us holy and united. Like, I had to really think, like, what are the barriers? If I could list out barriers to me having unity with everybody in the world, what would those barriers be on my end? I'm not saying what they could have done to rift a relationship with me because we have all experienced things that have caused relationship rifts. But what are the threats to me having unity with any single person? And there's probably more than this, but the ones I I listed were selfishness, my own selfishness, my own self-centeredness, my own jealousy, my own lack of empathy, my own greed, my own violent nature, my own um, acceptance of injustice, right? Like, and as I start making the list, I realize, well, these are very clearly not the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are in opposition to the things that are barriers for unity. So, if only I would live into the fruits of the Spirit, it's possible. I think it's very possible, especially in the church, for us to attain unity with all people. The Spirit poured out on us, unites us as priests for one another. And priests remind people of the gospel. They forgive people. They point each other to goodness, grace, and the love of God because we can display that. We can display God's love in the way that we treat one another. So we are very much a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Those who have had the Holy Spirit poured on them them are now priests for one another. And so what's becoming clear is a community that's drenched in the Holy Spirit from head to beard to toes will by nature be one that's united in that same spirit. Humans cannot be united, perfectly united, unless God does something to us. He pours out something on us, pours out unity like oil. Second illustration uh, that we find in the psalm is the illustration of Mount Hermon. Hermon is this 9,000-foot mountain in the middle of, uh, it's kind of 100 miles north of Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is built on the hill of Zion. And so Hermon is, is very much in the distance of Jerusalem, but it's, it's also kind of towering over Jerusalem. There's this 9,000-foot mountain off in the distance. And so already we can link this to the previous metaphor because the psalm says that unity is like dew from Mount Hermon but falling down, being poured out on Zion. So there's this other doubling down on the metaphor of being poured out. But also I, I, I like to think about the qualities of dew, right? Like for the, ancient, um, for the ancient world, dew signifies God's provision. It's this miraculous water that, that blankets the land every morning. There's new dew on the earth every morning. And of course, now we know that, well, it's, it's not miraculous. It's, it's due to water in the air that causes humidity, and overnight that temperature drops, so condensation happens. I know this because I'm a political scientist. That's my background. Um, oh, that's what Wikipedia says, actually. And, uh, right, but, but just because we understand something more does not make it less miraculous. Like, have you, have you seen an approaching thunderstorm. We, we understand scientifically how a thunderstorm works, but there's something awe-inspiring about seeing an approaching thunderhead with lightning and thunder and rain and darkness approaching. There's something otherworldly about that, even though we can totally explain it with science. 
And so when it comes to dew, dew is miraculous. Like, it's this sweet, life-giving nectar that animals and people and plants need, and it comes every morning. And the psalmist, King David, is saying, unity comes from above miraculously and rests on the people of God every morning. It's, it's miraculous, it's sweet, it's life-giving, and just like dew, it's, it's recurring. Every morning we need new dew like unity. God supplies unity in a way that refreshes and sustains his people, and he does it every day. Um, as, as a reminder, and as we've talked about, and as you've experienced, unity is costly. It's difficult. It's hard to attain. And it's because unity may, means to, to really fight for unity in a way that, that we're giving up something. It means that we give up our self in the end. Um, it costs us our preference for the sake of our brother and sister's preference or for the sake of their flourishing, or for the sake of them not stumbling. It costs us um, to give money to those in need, real money to support the local church. It's costly. It costs us when we fight for unity, right? That we, that we say, no, I'm not going to apathetically just remove myself from this relationship, but instead I'm going to enter into conflict that feels like strife for the sake of unity. I'm not just going to say, I'm done with you. It's going to cost me what I desire, which is fake peace, to fight for real unity, to fight for real peace. It's costly. Unity is very, very costly. However, and this is true for us, this is the gospel, there's one who has paid this cost. Ephesians 2.14 says this. It says, Jesus purchased the unity we experience. Here's the verse. It says, for he himself, Christ himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility in Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, we have been purchased and freed from slavery to be enslaved to unity, to be enslaved to love. And following Christ, the Spirit of God is poured out on us like dew every morning, like oil over the priest. And therefore, we are free to follow Jesus by dying to ourselves. By dying to ourselves, by giving up our preferences and what we think we might be owed. And instead, we give up ourselves and what we think we are owed for our brothers and sisters flourishing. That is what a community marked by unity does. We are free to be united. We are free to unite as diverse people with diverse experiences and bless one another with our diversity. We are free to unite in the spirit and extend hospitality and peace to a world that is lonely, anxious, and angry. In John 17, Jesus prays that we, his people, would be one just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And Jesus says, in our unity, the world will know that God is real. That we reflect the unity of the triune God and it's an apologetic, it's an offense for God's existence. We've talked about this in Nehemiah. We've talked about it in some of the Psalms of Ascent, that this was true for the Israelite pilgrims as well. 
that as they passed through towns and villages, people would see them united, marching towards Zion, see them singing the songs of the people redeemed, and they would begin to believe that God was worth believing in. They would experience the unity of the people of God and think there's something to this Yahweh. I think um, if you've been at Sojourn Mantras for a while, I think Sojourn Mantras has been blessed by miraculous unity. But if you've been here a while, you know that unity has been costly. We've fought for it, not in a bickering kind of way, but we've had hard conversations. We've had tough scenarios where we fought for unity because we love one another. And so if you're going to be part of a parish here, which I'd love for you to do, again, screen on my right, um, you're going to experience an imperfect people, but you're also going to experience a people whom the Spirit has been poured out on, who are fighting to love one another well. Um, our hope is that anybody who experiences a neighborhood parish or a congregation at Sojourn Montrose or in Sojourn Houston would experience the unity of Yahweh in a way that makes them stop and think, those people are all, are all different, and yet, there's a miraculous unity that is different. There's something different about the unity that they're experiencing, the love that they have for one another, the love that they're showing to me, even though I don't believe what they believe. It's an apologetic. It's a defense for the goodness of our Holy Spirit working on us. The psalm ends by saying, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. For there. For where? Where has the Lord commanded this blessing I think that there refers to both Zion, Jerusalem, and in unity. So Zion and Jerusalem, those are metaphors for the church. There he has commanded life forevermore. In God's people, there is life. And the eternal life that we will experience with Christ in a new city is marked by unity. So there's unity in the eternal city, and the eternal city is marked by unity. And so as we kind of wrap up this morning, unity is why we are a part of Sojourn Houston. So we, we talked about this is a sermon series that we are doing with all of the congregations in Houston that call themselves Sojourn Congregations. These congregations have looked at each other and said, we are better together. We've looked at each other and said, we reflect God's diversity and unity and love if we do this together. This morning... We ordain and send a new church to a new part of the city. Sojourn Southside has been united with us in, I think, a miraculous display of the Spirit. And that unity will not cease because they stop worshiping with us on Sunday. In fact, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will continue to be poured out on them in the Third Ward and OST South Union area and on us in Montrose, so much so that we can't explain how much unity we have with each other still. And the end goal of that is that we, Sojourn Montrose, will recline at a table with the brothers and sisters of Sojourn Southside for eternity. And we will marvel at the unity that won many souls to their congregation or our congregation or Sojourn Galleria or Sojourn Heights or Sojourn Spring Branch or Sojourn Oak Forest or any church around the globe. We will sit at a table for eternity and marvel at the unity that the Lord has done and say that it's like oil on our heads. It's like dew every morning. The unity that God provided his church was an apologetic and offense. And many will sit at that table with us saying, that's why I came. 
Sojourn Southside is freed in Christ to go into a new part of our city and pour out oil and serve up dew to neighbors, to serve up unity to neighbors who are desperate for peace. In the kingdom of God, the holy nation, there are no true goodbyes, because as I said, we will be united with them in the spirit for eternity. But as we come to the table this morning, we get to consider the cost of this unity. And there's a mourning that's part of that because we consider the death of God. But the tomb is not empty. So we also celebrate. That's why it's a celebration meal. We celebrate that Christ is alive, that it cost his body and his blood to buy us the unity that we get to flourish in, that we get to fight for, that we get to experience, that we get to offer up to lonely, anxious, and angry neighbors in our neighborhood who are desperate for unity. They're desperate for unity with God and unity with one another. And we have it. We have what they need. So as we come to the table, would we remember the cost and celebrate the cost? And as you come to the table, would you say, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, we bless you for the work and the cost of your, your very body, your blood poured out that bought us freedom, reconciliation to you, and reconciliation to one another. There is no way on earth to accomplish this without your cost, Jesus. The great peace that the world has experienced is, it turns out, a lie, unless it's from you. War, tension, conflict, broken relationships, broken families are on repeat until you change someone until you pour out oil, your spirit on somebody, until somebody wakes up and feels the dew blanketing them, the dew of unity. And Lord, we invite you to come back. Do not tarry so that we can finally step into the full unity that we taste here on earth because of the Holy Spirit working on these brothers and sisters. Would you, by your spirit, enable us to fight for, to enter into conflict for unity not to stir up strife, but, but don't make us avoidant, Lord. Make us willing to go there for the sake of unity. Real unity, not, not lip service to unity, real unity. Willing to submit ourselves to what our brothers and sisters say you've called us to. Instead of fighting for unity for our preference to really win out, Lord, would we, would we humble ourselves like you have humbled yourself to death, even on a cross. So as we come to the table, would we be renewed? Would unity be renewed like dew in the morning? Would we taste and see your goodness? And would we celebrate like an eternal wedding feast that we will sit at? We love you, Lord. Bless our time. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen.